ladies and gents, welcome back to uh, another Engineers podcast with myself, Elliot Kipling. We're joined by John Seeger, who's VP of Engineering at Canonical. We've got some quite cool subjects that we're going to be talking about today. And number one being Juju. This is Canonical's open source framework that they use to deploy cloud infrastructure that we're going to talk a little bit more about. We're also going to be talking about developer productivity and how Canonical can actually help with scaling some of your infrastructure. John, how are you? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, yeah, looking forward to it. Um, so yeah, I'm uh, I'm John Seeger. I am um, VP of Engineering for Enterprise Solutions at Canonical, which is a bit of a mouthful. Um, but for the last kind of 18 months, I've essentially been leading the development of all things Juju. So that's Juju itself, which is a pretty large Go code base, um, and then a, a handful of teams that focus on writing automations for different types of applications, right? So we have a data platform team who are writing automations for things like Postgres and MySQL and Kafka. Um, we have a team that's doing machine learning on Kubernetes with a product called Kubeflow. We have an observability team, an identity team, a high-performance computing team. Um, so like a, essentially a whole bunch of teams who take the like core product that is Juju and sort of write operators that are very, very specific to solutions and kind of provide ways for people to get access to that and integrate them together, that sort of thing. So Juju is pretty central to what you guys are building. At Juju Canonical. is, yeah, Juju is huge at Canonical. Um, it, it is a project that has not seen enormous amounts of kind of buzz in kind of outside of Canonical. It, it, it's not often, you know, people will talk about Ansible, they'll talk about Terraform, they'll talk about Chef and Puppet and, and frequently, and I, I used to be guilty of this myself, frequently Juju doesn't really enter the conversation, but it is in daily use at some scale at Canonical. So we not only build our own infrastructure with it, so we, we're currently running three data centers that are built entirely with Juju and Maz, our bare metal provisioning product. Um, but every time a customer comes to us to build an OpenStack cloud or a Kubernetes cloud or a bare metal cloud, or they want a managed service for Postgres, Kafka, like our only way of doing, the only way that we will do that is with Juju and with Chance. So they're sort of proven at scale, although somewhat stealthily up until this point, I would say. Okay. Well, where did Project Juju come from or where was the idea spawned from that we should build this ourselves, open source it and use it as just day to day? This is how we do things. Yeah, so it's quite a long story, right? And I've only been present for the last two years of it, but it started in 2009. And looking back, it was actually relatively ahead of its time. So it was primarily the brainchild of our CEO, Mark. Shuttleworth and our um, CTO, Gustavo Niemeyer. Um, and it was a sort of look at, you know, at the time Canonical was doing Landscape, which is a tool for managing a fleet of Ubuntu machines. Um, but it's kind of more the pets versus cattle, cattle versus pets. So Landscape was about like, you have a set of machines, you enroll them into Landscape, and then you can add users, install packages, write config files. But it's very much about maintaining that very same set of machines and kind of evolving them over time. Juju was kind of a bit of a shift there, more towards the kind of, you know, cattle over pets, right? And more like, you know, let's stop worrying about the underlying machine as much. What what SREs or what system, you know, what they were called systems administrators at that point, what they actually want is the ability to go and get a Postgres, right? Deploy a Postgres at scale N, deploy a MySQL at scale N. Um, and 
one of the things that was apparent both of our internal use, I think, of landscape and probably seeing it in our customers too, if I were to kind of project looking at where Juju is now, um, was, you know, deploying those things was never that difficult, but operating them, you know, beyond day two into day 100, day 1000, day 10,000 was increasingly complicated. And critically, actually composing them together, right? Like very, you know, not very often in the enterprise world does a piece of software get deployed completely on its own and it's completely standalone there's always a database or a cache or an event you know some kind of um, event queue system or something right there's always some observability tool it needs to integrate with some identity platform and that's super painful right like they all have their own config they all integrate in subtly different ways and juju was really about how to a make things more easy to operate over long periods of time safely but B, it's actually about like, how do you take all of this open source and glue it together to build solutions reliably, right? In a way that isn't just full of friction every time you do it. Yeah, okay. I want to touch on a couple of bits Juju related and that journey of the last 14 years, because there's a couple of things in there, especially around our evolutions into, into cloud and how you integrate with cloud. I'm going to ask that next. But It'd be good to find out a little bit more about John Seeger, but also Canonical for uh, some listeners that don't know about Canonical. And you yourself have got a really interesting background. Yeah, okay. So I'll, I'll start with me and I'll, I'll come on to Canonical as I you know, get through that story. So I have a, a somewhat um, unusual trajectory, I guess, into open source leadership. So I started my career as an army officer. So I went to Sandhurst, ran around training areas in the UK, being shouted at for a year. And then I spent... Um, about six years in the British military doing, um, I started out in the, in the Royal Corps of Signals doing kind of radio comms, but really specialized in um, signals intelligence, electronic surveillance, those kind of things. Um, and actually all throughout that time, the British military and the British government were undergoing somewhat of a transformation in how they reasoned about and defined their kind of place in, in for want of a better term, cyberspace, right? Like it, this it was becoming increasingly apparent in the kind of early 2010s that they were going to have to be a player there. And I came to the army with a computer science background and an interest in getting involved in that. Um, and so I was part of some kind of very early movement in the British army around educating soldiers with computer science basics, equipping them with basic programming skills, utilizing open source software to build bespoke, you know, bespoke solutions for things. Um, and so I had this kind of perpetual, almost like R&D, you know, slightly policy or kind of doctrine defining role to kind of help the British army understand what this could mean for them. Like where was their place in this game? You have these kind of national level players, intelligence players, various acronyms that you see around the world. And then you have the army, like where did they really fit in that? Um, I left the military in 2000 and uh, when did I leave? 2019, I then went to Talis, which is a, a big French, kind of civil and defense um, systems integrator, I guess. Um, and there I worked on the build of public cloud infrastructure for developing um, essentially cloud native applications for government use. So it was using Azure and it was my first kind of foray into doing things like Terraform at some scale. So we built an internal developer platform that would later be integrated with Talus's IT infrastructure that allowed Talus to burst out of their quite traditional kind of enterprise IT infrastructure and use some modern cloud primitives and give their developers access to the things they need in a very unconstrained way. And so finding ways to enable developers to have root access on the machines they were developing, have unconfined access to the internet while still working at a UK government classification level, that was really the challenge, right? Like it's 
balancing those two almost conflicting requirements. Um, and then I joined Canonical um, just over two years ago. I actually joined as a product manager. There was a whole bunch of things that changed in Canonical around that time, and I wound up leading this part of the organization. Um, Canonical itself has been around for uh, 19 years at this point. So it was 2004, I believe it started. It was founded by Mark Shuffleworth, um, and it's the company behind Ubuntu. So if you've ever used Ubuntu, if you ever got a free CD in the post back in the day, um, that's all Canonical's work. But it's it's expanded far beyond that and is now much more of a portfolio company, right? So we have all of the Ubuntu offerings, Ubuntu Core, Server, Desktop, but we also have our own hypervisor in LexD. Um, we have Juju, our cloud automation tool. We have Maz, which is a bare metal provisioner. We have things, uh, initiatives like Snapcraft and the kind of Snap marketing system. We're building container images, which we call Rocks. We have distributions of Kubernetes, distributions of OpenStack. Um, we have a, quite a large kind of embedded in IoT business. Uh, so uh, yeah, it's it's become a quite a kind of broad portfolio company, and we're at about a thousand people now. So that's the scale. And listening to you talk about uh, your your journey into the army, your journey into Talis, you've almost taken this natural evolution into open source software, IoT devices. So an SRE, especially Talis, it's probably given you a really good foundation coming into Canonical, being able to really understand what it means to be a portfolio-based business, working on a number of different things open source related for the community. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I... I owe an awful lot to my time in the military, and I owe an awful lot to some of the people who have managed me in the past. I have, um, I've definitely right place, right timed a few moves in my life, and there's, an, you know, an element of luck there to an extent. I've always enjoyed quite good support from quite senior people, particularly in the military, um, and that really gave me the opportunity to kind of, you know, go and cut a bit of a path or whatever. But the interest, I mean, I ended up at Canonical and open source, I and mean, I used to commute. Uh, I had this weird setup where I kind of I worked at a a military base that was two hours away from where I lived. And so every week I would sit in the car on a uh, Sunday evening and I'd come home on a Thursday evening. And I used to spend that that entire kind of four hour period of that of those weeks listening to Linux podcasts, mostly from Jupiter Podcast. So uh, things like Linux Unplugged and the Linux Action Show back in the day, I just absorbed like hours and hours per week of Linux podcasts, mostly around Linux desktop. So even now I run you know, weird esoteric tiling window managers and like that's my... At my spare time, I spend doing weird stuff with the Linux desktop. It, open source has been a bit of a thing for me for, for years. Um, and actually, it sort of became a natural evolution to do that at work. And the more I did it, the more I wanted to make sure that was all I was doing. Like, it became clear to me that that was the answer um, in the enterprise too, which I think we're seeing, right? Like, we're seeing that become the default. Think, look at the adoption of open source. Think things like GitHub, right? Yeah. It, it's just enormous. Like, we're starting to see, you know, even the Microsofts of the world are very, very credible and very valuable players in the open source space now. Yeah, it, it's definitely been massive over the last five, ten years, especially five years from what I can see with all of the tooling available, especially tooling available for for developers and engineers to use, for sure. Yeah, and, and I, I think the big difference between now and when when Canonical started and when Ubuntu was launched is back then, open source was the weird stuff, right? Like there, there wasn't that much of it. It wasn't, you know, there were lots of enterprises that would have considered it not as good because it was free. So how could it possibly be good? 
But you look now, like it's it's almost becoming the default. And and the open source projects that people talk about, they're not second class citizens, right? Like Linux, Visual Studio Code, Postgres, right? Like these are big hitting products that that are being used aggressively all around the world for you know enormous projects, right? Um, yeah, spot on. You you spoke about your introduction into uh, Azure Cloud with Talis, and I'm really keen to understand. Well, where does this leave you, Canonical, and even using Juju with integrating with multiple cloud platforms? And what, where do some of those engineering challenges come from? That that was my burning question some minutes back. Yeah. So Juju has native support for what it does on Azure, on AWS, on Google Cloud, on Oracle Cloud, on OpenStack, on VMware, on LexD, and on any Kubernetes, any CNCF conformant Kubernetes. You can you can use Juju in any of those places. Um, the biggest challenges for Juju, and I think for any tool like this, is we try to provide, you know, I, I think the superpower of Juju is if you can learn its abstractions about modeling applications, like models, applications, units, like there's a, there's a certain language, there's a certain, you know, some concepts to understand in Juju, but the, the whole point of it is you learn the Juju constructs and then what cloud you're on is should be somewhat transparent. So if you want to run your database on a big, like bare metal deployment in your data center, but you want to scale your web, web front end on a Kubernetes cluster on Amazon, you should be able to do that. And you can do that with Juju. There are, as ever, there's, you know, a few steps you might have to go through. And one of the things that we have yet to iron out is kind of automating the establishment of that connectivity. But absolutely right now, if you want to have a, a single Juju controller that can manage infrastructure in any of the clouds we just said kind of simultaneously, you can do that. And the challenge is how to evolve Juju at pace because this world moves quickly, but evolve it at pace, keeping in mind that we there's a bit of an identity as Juju itself. And we have to be very careful when we design features that we don't accidentally design something that's really only applicable to one of the supported substrates, right? And Kubernetes has been the biggest challenge here by far. If I think about all of the other places where Juju runs, it's about, provisioning either bare metal machines or virtual machines. And to a limited extent, it doesn't matter where you get your VM from, it's still a VM. It's likely to have system B inside it. It's likely to have a you know normal units file system, et cetera. Kubernetes is fundamentally completely different, right? Like you're talking about containers inside pods on top of um, container network interfaces and all these kind of things. It's just very, very different. And so we actually had a bit of a false start on that and ended up re-implementing our Kubernetes support in a way that makes the experience across machines and Kubernetes much more consistent. Um, but that's been a real challenge for sure. Can you talk to us a little bit more about that? About how we made it more consistent? Yeah. Yeah. So one of the things that um, has been true about Juju forever is it, quite interestingly, if you look at what happened, what's been happening in the Kubernetes ecosystem for the last three years or so, there's been much more of a rise of kind of operators, right? Like an Elastic operator or a MongoDB operator or a Postgres operator or whatever it might be. Um, and that operator pattern has been touted as something relatively new. Interestingly, Juju, where it somehow missed on the marketing back in the day or perhaps failed to get traction outside of Canonical, it's actually been doing the operator pattern for many years. So I mean, if we I talk about Juju and I talk about charms as the packages that Juju deploys, charms are operators. They are bits of generally Python code that is, is basically packaged operations code, right? So if you think about all the knowledge that a Postgres DBA might have in their head about how to manage a Postgres, 
what we're trying to do is hire those people and have them distill that knowledge into very clean, well-tested, you know, well-engineered Python code that can be used anywhere. So charms are all about operating software. And on machines, be those virtual machines or bare metal machines, what happens is we generally provision a machine, we put an agent down in that machine, we unpack the charm code, and the charm code is then essentially fed a series of events like install, start, configure, integrate with this thing, integrate with that thing. And it kind of, it has kind of callbacks inside it that say like, okay, you need me to install, I'll apt install that thing. You need me to configure myself, I'll write this config file. Um, and one of the challenges we had was like how to, you know, Kubernetes has much more of a culture of kind of immutability and stateless workloads. And so with OCI images, you would generally, you, would, you know, previously, people would generally assume that the image would remain untouched in production. It's quite difficult though, right? Like if you're trying to operate software. So what we've done is we've built a system whereby every, you know, as we scale applications out, we call each unit of a deployed, each piece of a deployed application a unit. So you deploy a Postgres, you scale it to three, it has three units. Each unit in Kubernetes deployment um, is a pod. And inside that pod, there are two containers, right? Using the sidecar pattern. So. Uh, similar to uh, like an Istio service mesh sidecar, something like that. And we developed a little tiny init system called Pebble. It's one of my favorite software projects from Canonical. It's available on GitHub. So on Canonical's GitHub, if you look at Pebble, it's a little tiny container-centric API-driven init system. And what we do is we inject that init system into every single container that gets scheduled. And then the charm talks to Pebble over a socket that's in a persistent volume share between the two. So we have this situation where the charm has full control over the file system in the other container. It can push and pull files. It can start and stop services. It can run commands. And so the charm suddenly can feel again like they're operating on the same machine, in quotes, as the, as the workload they're operating. And that's been something that's kind of evolved over the last two years or so. Got you. Got you. There's some really deep, valuable context there. And... I know we particularly wanted to explore in this podcast that what you're trying to do is help developers alleviate that feeling of having to be an expert here. So we're not having to be an expert across their whole stack. Help us understand what you feel is the real value that Juju can add without developers having to feel that. You know, let's just say hundreds of days into production. Yeah, I, so I think there's two people we're really targeting, right? So one is the um, the SRE or the, you know, the ops department that need to put software into production. And they may be fighting all kinds of different compliance regulations. They may be fighting cost pressure. They may be fighting uh, direction from some corporate entity that says they must be on AWS or, you know, that must be on AWS and that must be on Google Cloud. And the problem is you introduce a lot of grit there, right? Because they're, Clouds are quite different, and so um, there's a there's a learning curve associated with Juju, as there is. I mean, it's big and complicated, right? Like it, it's it's doing a lot of things, and so I'm not going to sit here and tell you that it, it is utterly trivial to pick it up. That would be that would be misleading. But it's not too complicated to get started. And the idea is that you learn the Juju way of doing things, and then the underlying cloud sort of should become irrelevant, right? Like you should no longer really care whether you're deploying your thing on AWS or on Azure. If you need a Postgres, you should just be Juju deploy Postgres. Juju config that Postgres. Juju integrate that Postgres. And the details of those clouds, whether it's a VPC you need to create or a project on Google or whether it's a 
you know, a V-net peering or a, whatever it might be, those details kind of fade away to an extent. Um, from the perspective of a developer, what what we try to, you know, the developer of like perhaps um, in an ISV, right? like let's say that you're the author of some web-based application. Perhaps you've got some Go backend and some Svelte or React frontend or something like that, and your application needs a database and a Redis and yeah, a cache, something like that. The, the, the operator framework, um, which is also available on GitHub, is our Python SDK for writing charms. And what that is, is a kind of comprehensive toolkit for you know developers of software to write operators for their thing. And we've tried to make that as simple and expressive as possible, right? So it's quite simple. You have a single Python class, you subscribe to the events that you want to implement, install, config, whatever, and then you attach a callback to those events. And the callback can just be a single Python method, right? So you can, I mean, to give you an example, I, I've been doing some work with a really interesting open source um, project called Parker, which is a continuous profiling tool for um, essentially running performance profiles continuously against the workload in production and seeing uh, how they perform. That is shipped as a as a Docker container, an OCI container, and I wanted to get that up and running. And a Juju deploy I actually wanted to use it to profile the Juju controller. We were troubleshooting something, um, and I took the kind of reference to that image. I wrote something in the order of fifty lines of Python. I wrote Charmcraft pack, and then I published it to the store, and it was then deployable to any Juju, to any Kubernetes anywhere in the cloud. Like whether that's AWS, your own Kates, or Micro Kates, or K3S, doesn't matter. And it's about 50 lines of code, because that 50 lines of code basically said, go get this container image, deploy it. Here's a brief description of the services I want you to run. You're good. Now, to make that HA, to make it back up, to make it observable, like they're all the kind of following concerns, and there's a bit more code, but we have this really nice mechanism called charm libraries, which are a way of essentially distributing the standard way to interact with things. So to give you an example, um, we have a, an observability stack called COS, the canonical observability stack. It's made up of Prometheus, Grafana, Loki, Alert Manager, these kinds of things. And if you want to make your thing observable, if you want, say, for it, for it to be scraped by Prometheus, the way you do that is you grab the Charmcraft, the, the Charm Hub library, single command, you just say, go get me the Prometheus library, that gets vendored into your Charm, you add a two or three line constructor and an import statement, and then your charm can be scraped by Prometheus. All of the logic around how to talk to Prometheus, what data to send to Prometheus, how to configure it, what interval to do it on is all contained in that reusable library, which we distribute as a, almost as a product, right? And other vendors can do that too. So like, let's say, I don't know, let's say that Oracle wake up tomorrow and decide they desperately want to write a charm for MySQL. We can dream, right? Um, they could write a library, which is a piece of Python, single file, they distribute to everybody that says, when you want to talk to MySQL, you include this file in your in your charm, you put this three-line constructor in, and you're good to go. And that's what we're doing. So we have one of those for Postgres, for MySQL, for Redis, right? So suddenly, rather than worrying about how your customers or your users are going to get access to all those things, the answer is relatively simple. Like the answer is you go and grab a bunch of libraries and build them into your charm, and they're just going to juju deploy your thing, juju deploy the Postgres, juju deploy the Kafka, juju deploy the Redis, whatever join them all up and then you're good to go, right? And they don't have to worry about that integration logic because the charming community, the charm hub community is providing that. Okay. Got you. I'm hearing resounding, simple, expressive speed. And, you know, referring back to one of the themes of the podcast being around developer productivity, 
it feels as if there's a whole load of thought that's gone into how do we make this really, really simple for our yeah. customers, for our users. And it feels as if the community are on board with that, obviously, hence being open source. But I can really feel that. Yeah, one of the teams that um, I look after is the StarCraft team. Um, and some of your listeners may be familiar with Snap Packages. They've been the subject of much debate on the internet, which you won't go into too much. But there is a format which, with which you build Snaps called snapcraft.yaml. It's a YAML file that basically says, like, go and fetch this source code, build it in this way, grab this library, and then you kind of, right at the very end, you kind of pick all the pieces you want from the build system and package it up into a Snap. And we call that the parts lifecycle. We have replicated that almost exactly. Well, the parts piece actually is exactly the same. It's completely reusable to a thing called Rockcraft. Rockcraft is for building Docker images, OCI images. And we have the same thing for Charmcraft. And so, again, there's a bit of a learning curve with our crafts. But if you invest in learning those things, well, suddenly you can now package software for Linux, any Linux distribution which will support SnapD, which is most of them. I've personally run it on Ubuntu. I've run it on Arch. I've run it on Red Hat-based OSs, right? So... You, that allows anybody, for example, to say, so if I go back to the example of Parker, you can now snap install Parker. It's a snap that I wrote. And I used that in the machine charm. So you can deploy Parker on machines with Juju. I then wrote a, a rock for it, right? Which is using the exact same description with some slightly different metadata to build the file system inside an OCI image that's then deployed with the charm on Kubernetes. And so while there is a learning curve, once, you, once you're comfortable with these concepts, it's very, very powerful, right? Like, Suddenly, you have the ability to put software anywhere at scale, right? Yeah, it fills it. I can really feel that. I think what always fascinates me as well about open source is the community, the support, and the help that actually sits behind some of what's being built. Can you help us understand what that actually looks like? Yeah, indeed. So, um, so for the Juju-centered kind of community, uh, there's a site called CharmHub. So that's charmhub.io. And that is essentially, if you just go to charmhub.io, that is a catalog of all of the charms that have been published. Um, there is also a discourse instance, so like a, a forum type thing. So that's at discourse.charmhub.io. And we also have a, a Mattermost instance, which is kind of like a Slack equivalent at chat.charmhub.io. And the vast majority of the engineers who work in my department hang out in there all day long. Right? So like you you will get access to people who are experts in Postgres who are writing charms for Postgres, people who are writing Kafka, Kubeflow, Prometheus, Loki, whatever, right? Like they're, they're all, we certainly the, the kind of charm, charming part of Canonical exists almost exclusively in that public forum for their day-to-day -day work. Um, on the kind of Snap front, there is the snapcraft.io and there's a forum.snapcraft.io, I think is the URL, similar discourse instance where you can talk about packaging for Linux and, uh, again, there are people in there who have been involved in Linux packaging since Linux packaging was a thing. Um, back to the old days of Debian and and uh, that's... there's a pretty good support mechanism behind you guys. Then, yeah, indeed, uh, certainly, and it's it's it it's certainly grown a lot in Charms. Uh, you know, Charms have got a relatively long history. The big thing that has changed. So, for anyone in your audience who has perhaps you know looked at Juju five years ago or, or whatever, the biggest thing that has changed is canonical's investment in the operator framework as the as the like de facto idiomatic way to write charms and also the investment in uh essentially populating the store with very very high quality kind of building blocks right so we are funding teams that work on all of the 
I guess table stakes projects that you need to build infrastructure with Postgres, MySQL, Prometheus, Grafana, Loki, blah, 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 traffic, Nginx, all these things that you might need surrounding your application are just there now. Like they're just available, they're high quality, they're secure, they can back themselves up, they're observable, they can integrate with your identity platform. Like that has never been the case before. We, I think Canonical several years ago was more relying on perhaps the community and other people to kind of get on board. And I think that's been a, a big change over the last couple of years, right? Like we're now essentially flooding that store with high quality artifacts for people to use. And we hope that people come along for the ride with us, right? Like it's all open source. The Postgres charms are on GitHub. They're, they're all there, right? Yeah. No, good. We, we've, we've obviously focused a lot on infrastructure, but I know you were quite keen to talk about, you know, what challenges you have across UX. Do you want to give us some insight into that? Yeah, so I mean, it partially goes back to this idea of designing features that are going to make sense across different clouds. Um, we also, we have a very, very strong identity, I think, around our craft tools. So I mentioned three of them there, Statcraft, Rockcraft, Charmcraft. There are other crafts. Um, there are some that are being cooked right now and some that will follow in, in kind of the next couple of years. And one of the things that uh, Canonical has is trying to be kind of more fanatical about is making sure that experience is consistent. Like it's all very well to have a whole bunch of, you know, StarCraft tools. If they all work completely differently, we fail, right? Like it, that, so we have this growing identity around crafts, which is how do you build different types of software artifacts, whether that be Linux packages, container images, VM images, charms, whatever it is. Like there should be a, a set of principles around that. We have a very strong notion in our stores of how we version software. So we have this kind of versioning thing where we have tracks and channels and branches, and it's a very, very rich way of expressing different versions of software at different risk levels. So like very stable, very unstable across different architectures, you know, and so that is consistent across the Snap store and the Charm store, the VR Rock store. Um, and in Juju, the challenge is actually how do we express all of that richness in a way that doesn't baffle? Um, it, we've done a lot of work on the kind of command line interface in, in recent cycles. There is a Juju kind of user interface dashboard. It's, it's not as good as I would like it to be yet. It's, it will be the subject of some, some more work in the future. At the moment, it's more of a kind of, you can see the status, but you can't do too much. You can't interact too much with the model. Um, but essentially trying to maintain the kind of discipline to keep all of those experiences somewhat consistent is really, really hard, but also really, really important, right? Like part of the sell here, part of the attraction is you learn this set of tools and you should feel like you should be able to take it. And if you sit down and every command has a different convention for the flags or how the store works or how things are versioned or built or whatever, it gets complicated quickly. Yeah, uh, I think it's important that you've got your DNA in those charms that I think if you know how to manage control them that you can actually scale that across your business obviously being a it's also about, you know it, in the spirit of open sourcing so i guess part of what, what we're seeing is like all the application code yeah. is open source what we're trying to do is lead a movement where all of the operations code is open source too as part of that in in developing our own understanding of how to deliver lots and lots of high quality charms we've started to invest in things like github actions that are publicly available that know how to build and test charms patterns for how to integration test charms on real kubernetes on github actions um 
it, we have developer tooling that multipass. Multipass is a command, you know, a tool that in, in one command gets you a working Ubuntu VM on any platform, so whether you're Mac, Windows, or, or Linux. You type multipass launch and you get you a little Ubuntu, and in there you could do all of your snap crafting and rock crafting and charm crafting. You can see that increasingly in our docs, I think. It's trying to get, you know, it's all very well having these kind of flagship tools like Juju and, and Snapcraft, but it's trying to find a way to kind of build that into an experience that developers feel is productive and feel is yeah. enjoyable, right? Like, hopefully. Um, that, that's what it's all about. And I think uh, open source always or usually creates uh, an immense following. And I think naturally people who are on board projects for months years they tend to end up at businesses if we take you back to you know your journey and listening to linux podcasts and thinking about getting involved in open source projects i see that quite a lot you know we've spoken to a number of businesses on the podcast that people are naturally attracted to projects because of the mission and, and what they're trying to do in the community it, it would be really good to understand where and if canonical are hiring where would people go to find some of these roles and what do you look for in people we are hiring we're hiring like mad um in fact we have grown in the two years that i've been here we've grown by 400 or so people we're wow about a thousand now um and we are still on that trajectory um we're hiring across all kinds of different engineering roles and support roles and product roles and commercial roles. Like we, we are a growing, we are a scaling business ultimately. Um, you can get a bit more information about that at canonical.com slash careers. We have a, we have a pretty selective and pretty, um, thorough, um, selection process. Um, you can expect, uh, kind of written interviews and aptitude tests and multiple interviews. Um, part of that is we, you know, one of the cells for Canonical is like, come and work here among hopefully razor sharp people who are really engaged and want to be here. And we, you know, we're very selective so we can maintain that, right? Maintain that feeling for the people that are here. But also we receive an enormous number of applications way beyond, way beyond what we could ever hire. And so we have a, we do have an involved process, but it is, um, you know, you should expect whether you're successful or not to get some good feedback and, and meet a bunch of interesting people along the way. I, quite fondly look back on my time going through our recruiting process. It was for me, it was meeting a whole bunch of people who I had been, you know, vaguely acquainted with over the years through, you know, interacting with the open source community and such. So it was quite a rewarding process. The the reason why I love this podcast is I'm so looking forward to seeing where the product, the portfolio company itself, or the company portfolio products are in the next 12, 18 months. And I'll be checking in, John. I'll be checking in, seeing what, yeah, seeing what developments have been made and what's been built. So I want to say a big thanks for coming to join us. You know, I massively, massively appreciate it. The community will as well. And from us, you know, a huge thanks. For everyone listening, likes, shares, subscribe, share with friends. and course we'll be back soon with more pods but john thank you so much no worries thank you very much for having me absolute pleasure hey guys thanks for watching this episode uh, massively appreciate you listening and checking in with us if you want to find out more about us 
and what we're doing, please check us out on social media. What we're trying to do at Engineers is build a community to drive knowledge, sharing and experiences. On Twitter, we can be found at engineers.io, it's no underscore. We've also got a website which is engineers.io. These links will all be posted in the description. Any feedback and comments are massively appreciated. We're always looking to improve on where we can. Thanks guys.